0: Our text this morning comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 1. <clears throat> it says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed Look on the affliction of your maidservant, and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, that I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever." So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there.
1: Thank you, Jason. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for being the God who hears when we ask. Lord, we're not coming to you on the basis of our significance or our importance or uh, the urgency of our need, but just because we we have a need and we can't meet it, we recognize that only you can. And so, Father, I, I pray on behalf of those who this morning are stuck, who are desperate, who are at a loss, who are unable to arrive at an answer. And who just need you to intervene. Lord, to one degree or another, uh, that's all of us, whether we feel it or not. And so I pray that this morning you would teach us how to be dependent and desperate for you. Father, we want to pause uh, as well and pray for our brother Cliff Spain as he preaches at First Baptist Church of Branch, Texas. I ask that you would fill him with your spirit and. Uh, make him effective and useful in your service in that congregation today. And Lord, I pray that all across our city, all across our state, our nation, that from every pulpit in every church, your word would be uh, commended and explained and expounded and your glory would be seen and your people would be changed and uh, that many would Fall on their knees and worship uh, in repentance and faith today. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday of 2022. However, it is the 17th Sunday of NFL football. That's not as important, but it is significant for what I'm talking about. (laughs) Now, there's only two weeks left. It's that time of year when for some teams uh, and their fans, the focus is on the developing playoff picture. And if you're a, a Dallas Cowboys fan, I congratulate you on a great season. <laughs> Yay for you. Uh, but for, we're also at a point in time when many teams are already thinking about next year and the upcoming draft in a few months. Uh, For Philadelphia Eagles fans like myself, we're sort of in between. We're kind of uh, on the fence. We don't know what to think about. We hope the birds make the playoffs, but we don't really have our hopes up too high. And we have a lot of questions about our current starting quarterback. If the Eagles put all their chips on Jalen Hurts... Even if they surround him with all the right personnel, is he going to be the guy to take us all the way? That's the question that everyone's asking. When you're trying to build a Super Bowl winning team, you go after the smartest, the most athletic, the greatest leader, the most consistent physical health, the guy who has that sixth sense for when to throw the football and where at the right time. The same is true in just about every important endeavor. If you want to win an election and your political ide- ideologies to, to, to kind of uh, hold sway in the political realm and win out at the ballot box, you back a candidate who has the ability to win, someone with a winning personality and important ideas and a track record of successful leadership. If you're being sued, you want to go out and find and hire the, the most a talented attorney that you can find because you need to win the case. It, whenever you do anything important, you want to find somebody that's good at what he or she does. You want to do something big, something significant, you find someone who's important and, and impressive. What we're going to find as we begin a new sermon series today is that quite often God does not work that way. God does not go after the best and the brightest. He isn't looking at the draft class and wringing his hands and wondering, should I trade up a few spots or should I kind of hold off till next year? Like, what should I do? Because I'm looking at the talent that's available to me and I'm not sure if, I can, if they can get it done. That's not the way that God approaches his big projects. In fact, the scripture shows a very clear pattern. When God is about to do something big, he doesn't look for the most important and impressive individual. No, he actually very consistently goes out and he finds a woman who cannot get pregnant for one reason or another. It's been the pattern in the scriptures. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, you can go back to the Bible and you can check it for yourself. It's always the case. And now, Hannah. Hannah. Our hearts go out to her. Can you think of anyone in a more pitiful and desperate situation, and yet if you're familiar with the sweep of Scripture's story, you know that when you're reading along and you read something like, here's Hannah and the Lord closed her womb, pay attention because something big is about to happen. What we're going to see this morning is that Hannah's story is sort of a a frame over which we can stretch the fabric of, of, of God's big story of his plans to rescue his people and rule them in righteousness. And I think that you'll find if you model your own life after Hannah's approach to her relationship with God that you'll experience the goodness and the greatness of God. As well, It is not that she's this mighty hero or clever sage or this talented person that makes Hannah our model today. I mean, I'm sure she was a wonderful person, but we really don't read anything about what she could do. No, what makes her our model is that when she found herself in need, in desperation, she didn't dig down deep inside herself. She went to the Lord and she asked for his help. In fact, that's clear if you pay attention to the details in this text, not as much in the English translation, but if you were to actually read 1 Samuel chapter 1 in the Hebrew language, you would see the same word repeated again and again in verses 17, 20, 27, and 28, actually nine separate times, we read the very same word. It's almost awkward how often it's repeated, and that's why your English translations kind of, they change it up and they use different words. But that word that's repeated over and over again in this text is the word ask. Ask, request, petition. And and, and so what, what this is communicating to us is that Hannah was desperate, so she asked the Lord to intervene. That is the central idea of this text. And given that that's the case, I just want to be really clear what my aim is in this sermon. My aim is that you would begin 2022 with the same kind of desperate dependence on the Lord that Hannah exhibits here. That you, would, that you would desperately bring your petitions, your asks, before the throne of grace. Because that desperation is often the prelude to a mighty work of God. And we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Samuel that it's the desperate people, it's the humble people, it's the people who know that God is big and they are small, that God reaches in and uses to do big things. So if that's the case, if God works through our desperate dependence and our penitent petitions to do something big and glorious, then how do we get there? Like, what do we need to know? What do I need to do in order to be someone who, like Hannah, is desperately dependent on the Lord? We're going to find today that this passage gives us six principles of desperate Dependence. And I'm going to go through all six today, and then I'm going to ask you to make a plan with me. And I'll just warn you in advance, usually I try to make it really simple for you guys to remember the outline. And I just know realistically that if you don't write these down, you're not going to remember them. And I think it would be important, at least for the next few weeks, for you to remember what I'm saying. And so I would encourage you and urge you to either get out your phone, the notes or something, uh, or grab a pen and write down these six things. Principles of Desperate Dependence. Here's principle number one. We must begin with the sovereign goodness of God. We must begin with the sovereign goodness of God. That's where Hannah begins. Her situation is really hard. I mean, she's, met, she's married to this well-meaning, pious man, but he has two wives, And he loves Hannah, but Hannah doesn't have any children. And so uh, meanwhile, she shares her husband with a woman who is as good at hurling insults as she is at having babies. And and so it's, it's hard to think of a more difficult circumstance than Hannah is experiencing right now. Maybe in some way, you can relate to what Hannah is going through. And our narrator makes it clear, surprisingly to us, to our modern imaginations that the situation remained this way year after year and, and it would be tempting for us to think that her, her situation is, is out of control and yet the narrator makes it clear. God is the one who is in control of this situation. What does it say in verse 5 and 6? What's assumed? Twice it's repeated. The Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. This is not something... As difficult as it is for us to understand, this is not something that the biblical writers are embarrassed about. This is not something that they feel the need to explain away. It's not some sort of egg-headed theological problem. In fact, Hannah rests in this reality. Notice how she addresses the Lord in verse 11. Look at Hannah's prayer. How does she speak to the Lord? She says, O Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Lord of hosts, it means Lord of armies. It emphasizes the fact that God is the commander of the countless armies of heaven and earth and is sovereign over the stroke of the sword and the path of the arrow. He is the one who directs the course of the chaos of battle. He is the Lord of hosts, not just the army of Israel, but the hordes of the Ammonites and the Philistines and even the angels and the demons. He's the Lord of hosts. He is the almighty God. In fact, the very first time that God's name is mentioned in this book, he is called the Lord of hosts. Not only that, but this is the very first instance in scripture of that phrase. This is the first time in the Bible that we read about God and he's called the Lord of hosts. In other words, we need to pay special attention to what's being communicated about God here in this chapter because our spirit-inspired writer obviously intended to underscore something that we perhaps do not expect. What's clear, what Hannah understands, is that her God is both the sovereign commander of the armies and the one who hears the whimpering whispers of a desperate woman. He's both. He's sovereign, he's in charge, he allows both the pain and the pleasures of our life, but he listens to the cries of the humble, and he acts on their behalf. You know, one of the reasons why we don't pray, one of the reasons why we don't get desperately dependent on the Lord and and bring our petitions to him and ask, is that we don't really believe that he's powerful and sovereign, or we don't really believe that he's truly good and has our best interests at heart, or maybe it's a little bit of both. You see, if God is really just uh, a powerful spiritual being but he's not meticulously sovereign, then the pain that you're facing may have been a complete and meaningless accident and there may be no purpose to it at all. And why would you pray to a God who may or may not intervene on your behalf, like who doesn't necessarily have the ability to do anything about it? Like why would you pray? What is he going to do? Or if God is sovereign, but he's cold and he's distant, then what does he care that you're pouring out your heart to him? Like, you're less than an ant to him. He is the most powerful being in the universe. Like, why would he care? You're so small and infinitesimal. Why would he intervene to help you out? It makes no sense to pray in this situation. But you see, Hannah understands, she knows her God. She understands that he's both sovereign, he's powerful, but he's the one who hears. He's the one who had closed her womb. That's hard to take. That's difficult to understand. That's confusing. That's heart-wrenching. But he didn't do that because he's sadistic and, and twisted and capricious and hateful and bitter. He didn't allow that circumstance because Hannah just isn't important to him. He allowed it for a good reason. Now, Hannah, in her situation, when she's in the moment, she doesn't know what that reason is, but she knows who her God is, and she knows he has one. She was desperate, but she depended on the Lord and operated out of the conviction that God was so powerful and so good that he was going to actually hear the prayer of a woman who doesn't feel heard and seen at all. You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is one of the things that you need to reckon with. When it comes to the message of the Bible, you need to, to reckon with the reality that God, who, of who God is, what he's like. He is the judge of all the earth, the sovereign king to whom you are going to answer one day. But he's also good, supremely good. And he hears the cries of those who call out to him in faith. Principle number one. We must begin with the sovereign goodness of God. Principle number two, the, the activity of desperate dependence is fasting and prayer. The activity of desperate dependence is fasting and prayer. So think about Hannah's situation here. It's, it's hard for us to relate to ancient Israel because we don't live thousands of years ago. We don't live in Palestine but try to put yourself in their sandals and, and, and their habits and their customs. Uh, Elkanah's family is taking their annual trip to the tabernacle to worship the Lord at the shrine in Shiloh. This is it's a couple days walk from where they're living, so they have to plan for this trip. They have to pack. They have to get a bunch of food ready. They have to make sure that the animals have food and shelter. When they're gone, they're going to be gone for several days. And then they get there, and they've chosen the best animals to bring with them for the sacrifice. Uh, they, they, they bring these animals to the tent of meeting. They sacrifice the animals. And keep in mind, this is the ancient world. There are no refrigerators. There are no deep freezes. So it's not like on a normal Tuesday afternoon you could say, I want to have tacos tonight. I'm going to pull some ground beef out of the freezer. That's not the way that they lived. So you, 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 there's very few times in the year when they would get fresh meat So some of these sacrificial animals, they bring to the tent of meeting and they perform the sacrifice. And and for some of these animals, the whole thing's burned up. But for a lot of them, they get a huge portion of this meat. And so what's going on is these families of Israel are getting together at a central location. They're, They're off of work and they're eating these massive quantities of meat. They're feasting and they're seeing people that they don't normally get to see because they don't live near them. In other words, The reason I'm telling you this is because I tend to think about Old Testament worship as if it's some kind of like a somber chore sort of thing, like something that you really don't want to do but you feel like you have to do. And I just want you to know and see and understand that is not the way it was for the average person. Like this was a special time. If you can imagine taking your family and packing up the van and bringing them to like family camp somewhere. Yeah, it's hard work to do that. But it's also a special time. That's kind of the, the way that it was. And, and so there's this wonderful feast. Everybody's laughing and, and having a great time. And they're eating all this food. And, and Hannah's husband gives her a double portion. But this time, Hannah is so distraught, even in the midst of that party. She's so upset. She's so desperate that she can't enjoy the meal. She doesn't even eat. She doesn't drink. What is she doing? She's fasting. She's fasting. She's fasting. She's laid aside the food and drink because she has one thing on her mind. She's committing her situation to the Lord in prayer. See, let me ask you a question. When was the last time, like Hannah, that you were so desperate for the presence and the power of the Lord that you set aside food and drink in order to seek His face? We're not very good at this, are we? In fact, Hannah's specific prayer, is really a, it's really difficult for us to relate to. She's actually making a Nazarite vow. This is an extreme level of desperation and commitment to the Lord. And it would be easy to misunderstand what's going on here, and I don't want us to misunderstand, so let me just explain what's going on. It would be easy to think that Hannah is approaching her relationship with God sort of like a witch doctor or, or a medicine man or a shaman. Like a, a, a witch doctor is someone who figures out how to make deals with spiritual beings in order to get what you want from that spiritual being. And it's, it's all over the place in other parts of the world. You you go, what do you do with the witch doctor? You go to the witch doctor and you say, hey, I'm having these headaches and I would like for them to go away. And then the witch doctor says, okay, you want your headaches to go away, then you've got to do this sacrifice, and then you go back and you do this ritual, and if you do all the things right, and if all the the circumstances are correct, then such and such spiritual powerful being will take your headache away, maybe. And I want you to know, there's no reason why we should... (laughs) We, we shouldn't be snobby about this in our modern thinking, right? We go to the regular doctor, not the witch doctor. I get it. But there's no reason to think that this sort of thing doesn't sometimes work. There are absolutely spiritual beings out there who will make a deal with you and give you some favor in exchange for something that they want to. The problem with it is you end up making a deal with an evil spirit and you, you find yourself further and further in spiritual slavery. That, that's not what Hannah is doing here. She's not going to God and saying, if I go on a hunger strike and I stop eating and if I promise to give my baby back to God, then he will do what I want him to do. Like, that's the deal we're going to strike. That's not what's going on. What does she say to Eli? She says, sir, what I've been doing is just pouring my heart out to the Lord. Did you catch that? That's what she's doing. She's just so full of pain, and it's consuming her so much that she doesn't even have the desire to eat. And so she comes to the tabernacle, and she just takes what's in her heart and pours it out before the Lord. Like, God, here is what's in my heart. Like, I'm just going to dump it all out so you can see what's there. I'm pouring out my heart. You say, well, what does that have to do with fasting and not eating? What good is it if she doesn't eat? I mean, is this some kind of, I, I just don't understand. What's the point? It's kind of like this. I got pretty good grades in high school, but when I went to college, I had sort of a rude awakening and I had to work a lot harder in order to keep those grades. I had to hustle. And so there were some times when I had to get a little bit extreme from the perspective of an 18-year-old young man who is six foot tall, but 140 pounds, super skinny, and super, super hungry all the time there were still many days during my freshman year of college where instead of taking the hour and 20 minutes in between chapel and my freshman speech class, which I would usually spend chowing down on rectangular pizzas in the dining hall, there were times when instead of going to do that because I wanted a good grade on my speech, I would go to find some empty classroom and I would practice that speech because there, was a, there were times when I was so focused on doing well on a speech, and I knew that filling my belly was going to get in the way, and so I laid aside the opportunity to eat because I wanted to go after something that had become more important to me. Or think of this. Imagine you're a stay-at-home mom, and you have three young children. Some of you don't have to imagine this. You can just live it. you have three young children, two of them are still in diapers, and between the laundry and the diapers and the breakfast dishes and the, the reading time just before nap and everything else you have to do, you come to about 4.30 in the afternoon and, and you know, you're trying to think about dinner and, and uh, what's next, and you realize you haven't, you haven't eaten so much as a snack that whole day. Is that because you have an eating disorder? No, it's because you have Toddlers. And sometimes you just forget to eat because you're just so desperate. You're like, you're just busy. All of your energy and all of your focus is on those kids, and and eating gets put on the back burner. Or imagine that you're a building contractor. I'm just trying to connect this with real life here, okay? Imagine you're a building contractor, and it's the day of the big concrete pour. And you get all the forms ready and all the steels in place, but then the concrete trucks are later than they said they were going to be, and it's a hotter day than you thought it was going to be, and you know if you don't work, you're starting to edge the pad and, and uh, trowel it, and, and it's setting up really fast, and you know that if you don't finish the job, like if you don't just hustle and keep working until the job's done, you're going to end up with an unfinished, permanent concrete slab. And so what do you do? You don't say, well, it's lunchtime, it's 12 o'clock, we need to take a break no matter what. No, you set lunch aside, you take a few gulps of water, and you work through the heat of the day until the job is done because that food, if if you pause and you eat, it's going to get in the way of the thing that's more important, getting that concrete slab finished. See, what I want to communicate is that this is kind of like what fasting is like. It's saying my relationship with the Lord, my spiritual need, is such a high priority to me. It's such a matter of urgency to me. That to eat is going to get in the way of that. And I want to pursue God even more. And so I'm going to set aside eating just so that I can pursue God. A full belly is getting in the way. It makes me feel complacent. It makes me feel like I don't really need God as much as I know I need God. And so I'm going to stop eating because I want to, I want to know God more. Fasting is not about losing weight, just so you know. It's not about uh, taking a cleanse. It's not a deal you make with God. It's the activity of desperate dependence. And if you do it, I know for some of you this is like, what are we doing? What are we talking about? But if you you decide, I'm going to fast today or I'm going to fast one day next week, you'll find an empty belly has a way of sharpening your spiritual sensitivity. For some reason, we've reached the conclusion that fasting is for the super Christian or for uh, people that lived in Bible times, but not for normal folks living today. And that's not true. Uh, Did you catch what Jesus said in the passage that was read earlier in the service? What did Jesus say? He didn't say, If you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. What did he say? He said, When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. He assumed that people who are serious about their relationship with God are going to deny their bellies in order to draw nearer to God in prayer. Hannah didn't have an eating disorder, nor was she trying to cut a deal with the Lord of hosts by making this vow. A a vow, it's not a repayment on a loan that you take out from God's bank. No, the vow is just a commitment to say, when you answer my prayer, I'm going to give you the glory. I wonder what we'd see take place in our lives in 2022 If we committed to giving God the glory whenever he answered our bold prayers. I wondered what we'd see take place if we hungered for God the way that we hanker for a burger. Principle number one, we must begin with the sovereign goodness of God. Principle number two, the activity of desperate dependence is fasting and prayer. Principle number three. Desperate dependence is going to seem crazy to others. Desperate dependence is going to seem crazy to others. You're going to see a lot of comical exchanges as we study 1 Samuel this year. And Hannah's conversation with the two men in her life is, these are a case in point. I mean, what happens? She's not eating, and her husband comes up to her, and this is classic husband, right? Hannah, what's wrong? I'm sad. (laughs) I don't have any children. Come on, Hannah, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? (laughs) He just doesn't get it. Then she goes to the tabernacle to pray, and she walks, up walks the the one guy who's supposed to have some level of spiritual sensitivity, basically her pastor, right? Right? And instead of recognizing this is a woman in desperate need of of the Lord's intervention, he goes up, you need to stop your drinking. (laughs) Totally misses what was going on. Eli is totally unaware. Obviously, he's a lot more accustomed to hanging out with drunkards like his worthless sons than he is with spending time with godly women, as we'll see in the coming chapters. Eli's supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel, but he's just not doing the job. Hannah is so desperate in her desire to see the Lord meet her need that she is a complete mystery, not only to her husband, but to her pastor. And that's the way it can be sometimes. When we truly commit our way to the Lord, don't be surprised. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that this kind of desperate dependence on the Lord is just not something that you see every day from every person. People are going to think that you're crazy. You're not eating at all today. Is that healthy? Is that good for you? Come on, eat something. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Jesus was always sounding like a crazy person. One day a man approached him and he said, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And we would, we, if we heard something like that, we would think, if we were one of Jesus' disciples, Hey, great, fill out a visitor slip and come to ICBC 101 or Jesus Disciples 101, whatever the new members class was called back then. And, you know, we'll get you set up, and you can meet some people, and this will be great. We, we're glad. But that's not the way that Jesus responded. What did Jesus say? Because uh, the guy had, had given Jesus a condition. He said, the only thing is, I just got to bury my father. Like, that's reasonable, right? This is his father. And what does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Crazy. I mean, can you imagine hearing somebody say, like, that, that, this is not... The kind of person who's giving normal advice. Let the dead bury their dead. He told his disciples on another occasion, if any man wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Does that sound like normal advice to you? You want to follow me? You're a dead man. Give it all up, even life itself. Teenagers, listen to me. If you follow Jesus in 2022, you are going to come across as crazy to your friends. Like, you are going to stand out. The way that you approach dating and relationships is going to seem totally crazy. The way that you order your priorities and your schedule is going to seem totally crazy. The way that you think about the world might even make people mad. It's going to feel like you're walking into battle because you are. And it doesn't matter what school you go to. This is the way it's going to be. You're not in a battle with the guy in your math class. You're, you're in a battle with spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and the fact of the matter is that people entering into that and watching the way that you're desperately dependent on the Lord, they're going to think, you are nuts. And that's the way it goes. Don't let everybody else set the standard for you. Hannah wasn't unkind. She wasn't disrespectful. She wasn't impatient. But she wasn't about to let anybody make her doubt her commitment to the Lord. You know, we need to begin with the sovereign goodness of God, the activity of desperate dependence, it's fasting and prayer. It's going to seem crazy to others, but then consider with me principle number four. Faith borrows joy from a limitless supply of future grace. Faith borrows joy from a limitless supply of future grace. We don't want to rush through these passages. There's something really powerful that happens in the tabernacle in Hannah's life. She prays. Eli pronounces a blessing. And then look what happens in verse 18. She's finished the prayer. She gets up, and what are we told? The woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Her circumstances were no different. Her situation had not changed. She had not been visited by an angel. She hadn't been downloaded a vision, and yet she walks away with a transformed disposition right back into the same circumstances that led her to her desperate uh, time of fasting. She eats. She's no longer sad. What just happened? What happened is Hannah is living by faith. Not faith in the power of positive thinking. Not faith in some specific outcome. She doesn't know what's about to happen. But faith that her future rested in the hands of the Lord of hosts. Faith that her prayer had been heard by the one whose covenant love is everlasting and and whose mercy is toward the humble. She's living by faith, and she knew that the Lord was going to take care of it in his way and that his way was going to be good for her. That's faith. And the result, the fruit of that kind of faith, it looks something like joy. She went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, it's normal for us to draw our emotional well-being from our present circumstances. This is one of the reasons why we're so unstable. This is one of the reasons why we're so changeful. It's because circumstances are going great, we're, we're doing well emotionally. Circumstances go down, and we go down emotionally, spiritually. One minute we're up, the next minute we're down. But those who are desperate for God and depend on His grace do not draw their emotional well-being from the present. They draw it from the future. Do we understand this? It's this hope This confidence in the reality that the reward isn't here yet, but it is coming. This is the way that Christians live. We have all things in Christ, but where are they? According to Ephesians chapter 1, they're in heavenly places. And sometimes it doesn't feel like I have all things in Christ, but I know by faith that I do. And so that faith, that knowledge that the future is filled with unlimited grace, gives me joy in the present. Why do we even rejoice in suffering? Because it produces endurance and it strengthens our hope and hope doesn't put to shame. Romans chapter 5. How does a believer in Jesus find joy? The same way that Hannah finds joy. She borrows it by faith from a limitless supply of future grace. She knows the future is in the hands of the Lord of hosts and that that is enough for her to endure joyfully a difficult present. Faith borrows joy from an unlimited supply of future grace. Principle number five, answered prayer demands extravagant and specific celebration. Answered prayer demands extravagant and specific celebration. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I want to make sure I leave enough time for principle number six, but follow what Hannah does. She makes this vow. Uh, She she commits to the Lord that her priority is not not herself, but the glory of God, she's going to make sure that when he answers prayer, she's going to give him the glory. God gives her a child, and then she makes good on her vow. And then look at verse 24. Here's what my translation says. She said, it says, when she had weaned the child, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. Now, I know the, the translation Jason read said she took three bulls. And there's a kind of a discrepancy in the text. Which one is right? Was it three bulls or a three year old bull? And here's the point that I just want to make that is a massive, extravagant sacrifice. I mean, that is huge. Whether it's a three year old bull or three bulls and all this flour and wine, she, don't just skim past this. She is giving up her child. Samuel is still really young here. And then she brings a three year old bull as a sacrifice. This is a massive show. Of worship to God. And this is the way this is the way it is. God answers prayer and and his answered prayer demands extravagant worship and praise on the part of his people. It's reasonable worship. I don't know what 2022 holds for us, but I do know that when God's people decide to ask God for his presence and his power then he is going to answer, and when he does, we'd better be ready to celebrate. We'd better be ready to acknowledge his answered prayer, to thank him for the prayers that he's answered. I don't know what's going to come this year, but I do know he's going to answer our prayers. Answered prayer demands extravagant celebration, but then notice with me principle number six. God's way is always better for you and bigger than you. God's way is always better for you and bigger than you. took us just a few minutes a a moment ago to read this passage. And uh, compared to some of the other stories in the Bible, it's really tidy. You know, there's this thing, this problem. Hannah doesn't have a child. She prays about it. God gives her what she asks for. She keeps her vow. God blesses her in even greater measure. Very neat and tidy when we read it. But if you think about this from Hannah's perspective, it was anything but. Here's a woman who has lived a life year after year after year with this great emotional pain and grief. And I'm telling you that if Hannah were able to pick up the pen at the very beginning and write her own story There is no way that she would have written in, have no children for years. That's not how she would have written it. No one chooses to be deprived of their heart's desire, but God's way for Hannah was better. And at the end of her life, looking back, I'm sure there's not a thing she would change. God's way was better. But I think one of the most important lessons we can learn from Hannah's experience is the way that God cares For the second wife of an obscure Israelite while at the same time setting in motion a plan that would lead to the rescue of his people. In other words, this story is not a one-off that simplistically describes how you can get God to give you what you want. That's not why this story is included in the Bible. You have to zoom out and see the big picture of what God is doing. I mean, think about it from the perspective of all of Israel. They've been in this Groundhog Day-like cycle. You know, the same thing happening over and over and over again. The people rebel, and then God sends uh, an enemy to oppress them. The people cry out for mercy. God sends a deliverer. They're rescued. They rejoice. Then the people rebel. Then they get uh, an oppressor, and so on and so forth. And so it goes. They've been stuck in this cycle. And as you read through the book of Judges, it just seems like it's getting worse. There's no king in the land. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. It's a far cry from the kind of blessing we read about in the book of Deuteronomy. And an unknown woman, whom no one understands, takes it upon herself to fast and pray. And God hears her cry and answers her prayer and it sets in motion a course of events that leads to the arrival of a man after God's own heart. The man who would enter into covenant with God, David himself. And with David, God is going to begin a divinely ordained dynasty that will culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ Great David's greater son. And and Jesus is going to wear the crown and fulfill the covenant and sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high and rescue is going to be available to every man, woman, and child. And one of the things that kickstarts this whole process is a woman fasting and praying. So what we hear from the world is that it's good for us to create our own story and to listen to our own heart and to shape our own meaning. Essentially, what the world tells us, what we tell ourselves, is to put ourselves right in the center of the universe. And and what Hannah understood, what we need to understand today, is that it's actually better for us when we humbly take our place in a story that is not primarily about us at all. And recognize that when God is working, his way is better, and it is much bigger than we are. This is part of what it means to desperately depend on the Lord. It means believing that his way is better even when it's painful. It means resting in the reality that while well, I can see maybe two or three ways that God is working in the life, he, in, in my life, he's actually doing like way more things than we can even see and perceive. His way is better and his, his work is bigger than what we can see and do. God's way is better for me and bigger than me. Principle number one. We must begin with the sovereign goodness of God. Principle number two the activity of desperate dependence is fasting and prayer. Principle three desperate dependence is going to seem crazy to other people. Principle four faith borrows joy from a limitless supply of future grace. Principle five answered prayer demands extravagant and specific celebration. Principle six God's way is better for you and bigger than you. And with all that in mind, before we close, I want to ask you to do something very specific. It's the start of a new year. For some of us, we just sort of limped into this year, like I survived. That's all you're going to get. (laughs) We're here. And that's okay. Others took some time to think about what they wanted to accomplish in the coming year. But instead of starting out the year on autopilot, instead of focusing on accomplishment and achievement, I would like to to just urge you to make a plan to begin this year by asking, by getting down to the business of depending desperately on the Lord. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to take uh, next week, beginning a week from today, and, and plan to make it a week of spiritual desperation and dependence and renewal, a week of fasting and prayer a week in which you kind of clear your desk and you seek God's face. And that might look to, uh, it, it's going to look like different things to different people. I understand we all have responsibilities, work, family, that we can't just hang them up for a week. But you take this week to make a plan and then beginning next week, follow through on that plan. And I'm telling you guys, that is, that is going to be a wonderful way to start this next year. To say, I'm going to take a whole week and I'm going to Work this plan to desperately depend, to fast and pray. And I think what you'll find is that the Lord of hosts, the one who commands the armies of heaven and directs the circumstances of your life is also the God who hears the simple requests of his servants. He lifts up the humble and he rewards those who desperately depend on him. And I would just ask you to make that commitment with me this coming week.